smell is a, all of them. At some point, somebody counted, they said there were 613. I don't know how many rules and regulations there are, but there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy, is the Old Covenant. God said, you follow these rules, what you should wear, what you should eat, how you should treat one another, how you should worship me, and I'll be your God. Simple, easy. It was a covenant. You do this. This is what you can expect. I'll do this. This is what you can expect. The problem was nobody could keep the law. And they realized that pretty quickly and pretty clearly that nobody, no matter how hard they tried, could keep all of these commandments. And you know this in your own life. Most of us can't keep the Ten Commandments for a week, much less keeping hundreds of commandments for our life. We can't do it. No matter how hard we try, we all break down on some level, and it was happening to the Israelites. And what was the deal was that the law was external. It's like a speed limit sign. When you drive by and you see and it says speed limit 35, that law is external to you. That's not something that's inside of you. The government imposed that law upon you. And you may choose to slow down or you may not, but that speed limit does not, the sign does not help you obey. You may obey because you don't want to get caught. You may obey because you've gotten caught before and you don't want to pay a fine. You may obey because you think, well, there's someone who could get hurt if I speed. But there's nothing about that sign that gives you the power to obey it. And that was what was going on with the Old Covenant. God had given all these rules that said, this is how you should live, but the law didn't help people obey. It just said, this is what you're supposed to do. It didn't give people the power to actually do it. And so people were falling down on the job left and right, and the whole covenant was crumbling. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that it just kind of keeps going downhill. There are moments where things kind of pick up, but the general trajectory is this thing is falling apart. It's just not working. The people aren't holding up their end of the bargain. And God said, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, this is what's going to happen to you. And he keeps his word, and so that happened to them. They were exiled, they were taken captive, their country was overrun by foreigners, it was bad because they couldn't keep the law. And what Paul is saying is that's, that was the setup, that's how things originally were. And this law is like was a veil over their hearts and it kept them from encountering or seeing the glory of God. We, can't, we don't have time to talk about what the glory of God is this morning, it's a huge concept, real For us, it's going to be shorthand for God's presence and majesty. So when you see glory of God, think God's presence and God's majesty. So to talk about the glory of God is really to talk about the Lord being with us, to encounter him and experience his presence and his majesty. And Paul says the law was like a veil that kept you from experiencing that. And now when we think of veils, a lot of us think about the pretty lace things that brides wear on their wedding day that you can see through. This is what Paul was talking about. Something like that. I can't see. This is the veil in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You can't, it's not something that you can see through. You can't see at all. Its purpose was to prevent you from seeing. Think ski mask, not pretty little lace thing that you can kind of, that you can see through. That's not what he's, he's saying. You can't, there is a veil over your heart you cannot experience. You can't see the glory of God. You can't experience God's presence. It's not that you can see it kind of filtering through the lace. It's a ski mask. You can't see anything. 
And we know that's true. The, the law, all the law did was tell us what to do and then make us feel bad for not doing it. It didn't do anything about the sin problem. It kind of, it created sin in the sense that it said, here's what sin is. We wouldn't know speeding is a sin unless there was a sign that said 35. If there's no sign, there's no speeding. And that's what the old covenant did. It said, here are the rules. Oh, and you're breaking them, by the way. So it served as a veil that kept people from experiencing the glory of God. And then we pick up with our verse in verse 16, and Paul says, and everyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So that's, you know, we're all born like this, and we can't see the glory of God. And Paul says when we turn to Jesus, this is what happens. And then we can see the glory of God. Now I can see. And then he goes on to say, these are the results of being able to see. There's freedom for you. The, the Lord who is the Spirit gives you freedom, and the result of that is that you'll be conformed into the image of Jesus. Good. Most of us say, well, I'm not a Jew. Is anyone in here Jewish? You can raise your hand. No? Most of us are not Jewish. We weren't raised according to the Old Covenant. We weren't raised that said, here's the law. Now, this is how you need to relate to God. Follow all these rules. We don't, we don't get that. So we don't feel like we're bound to the law in any way. That doesn't mean anything to us, necessarily. We, get the, we can get the, okay, I'm born and I've got something here, but I become a Christian and it's gone. Jesus pulls it up. But we don't really get what he's saying here, I think, about freedom. But I, I believe there's something here for us, and that's where I want to go today. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says this. He carries on this same kind of line of thinking. He says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He was talking about a veil that covers our hearts. So this is what he was talking about. And then he just kind of switches metaphors and says, the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we've got, we can't see, it's the same thing. You can't see because of the veil, or you can't see because you've been blinded. He's communicating the same truth. We're all born unable to see the glory of God. In one sense, he's saying it's the law that veils our hearts. In another, he's saying it's the enemy. It's the God of this age. It's Satan, whatever you want to call him. He's the one that's blinding us. Now, when we become Christians, the veil is lifted totally, completely, fully. If you remember in Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is crucified, when he dies, it says that the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. There was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place from the most holy. The most holy place is where God was supposed to dwell. And the high priest could only go in there in the according, once a year, maybe three times a year, depending on which era it was, doesn't matter, could go in there very rarely, and he was the only one, and he had to be super careful, and he could die in there. And there was this big curtain that was not, again, it was, the curtain was meant to keep people out. It was a barrier. It was as thick as my hand. That's how wide that curtain was. It wasn't some little drape that you could see through. The, it was to keep you out and to keep him in. It was a, part, it was a barrier between people and God. And when Jesus died, the Bible says that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. I read somewhere that it took 300 men to hang that curtain. That's how much it weighed. So it's not like ripping a sheet of paper here. 
and it was ripped from top to bottom. The Lord did that. If he can raise someone from the dead, he can rip a curtain from top to bottom. So if that's an issue for you, then there are probably other issues as well, and we can talk about those later. If you get... If you can go with the resurrection, then you should be able to go with God being able to rip a curtain from top to bottom. And that ripping of the curtain symbolized that this partition is gone. Now anybody can enter into the most holy place. Anyone can. So that's what Paul's saying. The veil was, is removed. Anyone who turns to Jesus, you go from this to this. Yes. If you read the miracle stories in the Bible, when Jesus heals blind people... They always can see afterwards. There was one case where a guy could only partially see, and Jesus prayed for him again, and then he could see fully. He doesn't just open one eye. He doesn't, you know, they can see fully, clearly, completely. The picture there is he opens the eyes of the blind so that you can see. So I don't want you to hear me saying Jesus' work is not effective. It is. However, we all know that sin has consequences, and the consequences tend to linger. Jesus forgives our sins, which is taking the veil. But the consequences of our sin, and especially, or maybe even particularly the sins of other people, those, uh, the consequences linger. And you know this in your own life. You've been forgiven for things, but you still seem to have the consequences of those things. You can kind of, never mind. You can, the consequences, I think, remain beyond even forgiveness. And what that does to me is that's kind of like this. Jesus opens the veil or removes the veil so I can see, but because of my sin, the consequences of my sin, the consequences of the sin of people around me, sometimes I wind up seeing like this. It's just one eye. Or maybe I can kind of see halfway like this. Or it's the consequences remain beyond my forgiveness, and that causes me to still not be able to see completely. It would be like if I was blind, and now I can see out of one eye, which is a lot better than not being able to see out of two eyes, but I'm still not all the way there. I think that's what happens to most of us as we live life. Most of us didn't become Christians until a little farther along, and so we had time to sin a decent bit, and most of us sin some even after we're Christians, and the consequences of that affect us even after we're forgiven, and those consequences cause us to not see the glory of God completely and clearly and fully. We see partially. And so we're not changed fully into the image of Jesus. So the question for me is, what can you see? Last week we talked about what do you smell like, and today the question is, what do you see? Do you see clearly the glory of God? And that's not just an abstract kind of churchy question, because if you look, Paul, it's interesting to me what he ties together. He says... Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So I would think the next thing he would say is, so they can see. But he doesn't. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not there is sight, there is freedom. Paul ties together blindness and bondage, and he ties together sight and freedom. And so the issue is not, it's not some churchy thing, well, how well do you see the glory of God? The issue is a lifestyle thing, how free do you want to be? How free do you want to live your life? Because blindness and bondage are tied together. And seeing and freedom are tied together. And most of us don't know what we can't see because we can't see it. If we could see it, then we could see it. But we can't. And so we don't know what it is. But most of us do know 
what hangs us up. We do know where our bondages are. We do know the things that hold us back. And if you know those, then we can figure out what you can't see. If we can figure out what holds us back, what we're in bondage to, then we can figure out what we can't see about the glory of God. What is it that the God of this world is blinding us to? What truth of God is he preventing us from seeing? I don't know that because I can't see it, but I do know what my hang-ups are. And there's a connection between those two things. People who study people are called anthropologists, and they say there's four basic human needs. These are universal. Some may add some to the list. Some may define them in different ways. But generally, people say, these guys say people want love. They want to know that others care about them. They want acceptance. They want to know that they belong to some group, somewhere, identity. People want to know who they are and security. They want to know that their needs are going to be met, that they're going to be taken care of. Those are the basic kind of universal psychological needs, love, acceptance, identity, and security. And if you believe that God created people, then it's pretty easy to connect the dots and say God created people with those needs. If he created us and everyone has those needs, then it's pretty easy to tie those two things together and say, well, he created us with those needs. And I think he did. I think God created everyone with those same basic needs. And the reason is because he can meet them. We're, he desires to be in a relationship with us, and so all those needs, if you look at them, are relational needs. Love, acceptance, security, and identity. And so that he's created those needs, and he desires to fill them. And I would say that most of the bondages that most of us struggle with occur around one of those four needs. Now, you've got, you know, kind of the biggie addiction things, alcohol, drugs, pornography, food, all that. Okay, if you struggle with that, you know you struggle with that, and that's probably rooted in this stuff as well. I want to look a little this morning at some things that are more subtle that maybe can trip us up um, more so because they're not so uh, obvious to us or to other people that we are in bondage to these things. Excuse me. Um, I was thinking about Marietta. I've lived here since I was six, and I moved away for seven years when I went to school, and when I came back, um, it didn't take me seven years to graduate, by the way. I went to two schools. Um, that just makes me feel better about myself. I'm not sure why I had to throw that in there. Um, so I moved, that might mean that I've got, I'm struggling with one of these things here. So I come back, and, every, and things have changed. Everything has kind of amped up. It, there's just more. Everything is more. There's more people. There's more traffic. There's, everything is just more in just seven years. I was gone from 93 to 2000. And something happened from 93 to 2000 that just kind of the whole community was on steroids or something. Everything just got more. Not necessarily better or worse, just everything was more, period. And I've thought about that when I moved back. I moved back from a small town, and I've wondered about the more of life here and realizing, I think because I've been somewhere else, that it doesn't have to be that everybody doesn't live this way. They don't. Not everybody lives the way we live here. It's not that the way we live here is bad, but it's not like this is the only way people live life. Even the only way people live life in suburbs in America. It's not just that people live different in you know, Africa. They live different here in different places in the United States. And there's a cycle that I've been thinking about for a long time that I think, and this does relate, of busyness and affluence in our culture. I think there's some places where people make money in order to rest and relax and kind of be indulgent and, you know, 
the whole watch TV and eat bonbons on the couch deal. I don't think that's why anybody makes money here. I don't know anyone who does that. I haven't met anyone that lays on the couch and eats bonbons and watches Oprah all the time. There might be people who wanted it. I don't know anyone who does that. It seems like here, the affluence for us leads to busyness, and they drive one another. We make money so we can do all of these things, and we do all these things that cost money, so then we have to make more money so we can do more things. And it's this vicious cycle of affluence and busyness, and we never get a break, and that ties in because I think everyone wants to be accepted. And here, to be accepted, there are certain things that you have to do. There's neighborhoods that you need to live in and schools that your children need to go to and places that you need to go on vacation. And I don't think any of that is overt, and I don't necessarily think there's some, you know, group of Illuminati who are forcing this on us who run our community. It's just, it is, whatever. It's floating around out there. It's the God of this age blinding us. And so for whatever reason, there's some group of people who many of us don't even know who are faceless, and we feel pressure to be accepted by them. And here, what that means is you better make some money because you've got stuff to do. <laughs> and so that's what we do. And so we're incredibly busy trying to fit in to some group, and it doesn't. It doesn't work. And that's, we just keep doing this. The need to be accepted is God-given. The need to be accepted by a group of people is God-given. Trying to shut that down is not going to work. It's not healthy. It's not righteous. It's not holy. It's wrong. God wired you, and he wired you to be accepted by a group of people. The deal is, first, we need to realize that we're accepted by him. And if you can get that, then you won't have to work quite so hard to be accepted by these other folks. Because the one whose judgment is eternal has already said you're in. He's already said, well, you're my son or you're my daughter. Most of us don't work that hard with our families. We know they're stuck with us, for better or worse. We don't work that hard trying to get acceptance from our family. We work for people on the outside. And what God's saying is you're part of the family here. Now, obviously, as a body of Christ, we want to be a place where people can be accepted. And all of these needs, I think God does desire to meet through the body. And yes, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. I'm talking individually about us and the things that hang us up. And I think one of the things that drives our community is a desire to be accepted by somebody out there, or some group out there, whoever it is. And we run like crazy trying to get them to say that I'm okay. Tell me I'm part of the team. Tell me I made the cut. Tell me I'm in the club. Just tell me. And I work really hard to make that happen because the God of this age has blinded me to the fact that God has already said, you're on my team, you're in my club, and I've already accepted you. So some people are blinded by acceptance. I think love is tied in with that as well. Some it's an identity then you can see all of these, um, no offense to people who are under 18, you can see all of these, particularly in junior high and high school students. You see it if you're around students because they're, they're, growing, they're realizing I've got these needs and they're trying to get them met. But the thing is, becoming an adult doesn't make any of it go away. These needs are not magically met because you're 21 
or because you get married or because you have children or whatever. They're not. If anything, the needs just get worse and we get better at finding other ways of meeting them. Identity, which again, I think is closely tied to acceptance. Um, The idea that I am who I am isolated from you is a lie. We're relational people and I am who I am in relationship with y'all. If you were to pick me up and drop me into another family and my wife was someone other than Misty and my kids were someone other than the three I have, I would become a different person because I am who I am in relationship to them. If you were to drop me into New York or if you were to drop me in Africa or if you were to drop me in 1850, who I am would change because I am who I am in relationship to the people I'm in relationship with. It's ridiculous for me to think I'm some type of independent rock who is not affected by the people I'm around. I'm not and you're not because that's not how you were made. We were made for a relationship with God and relationship with one another and we are who we are in relationships. So that's good and that's right and that's where we get a large part of our identity is in our relationship. You can see that the whole, you know, why people join gangs and all that jazz trying to figure out who we are. None of that stuff is bad. That's why, you know, parents bend over backwards to get their kids into the right school because I want them to have good friends, whatever that means because I know that my child will be who my child is in large part based on who their friends are. So if I can get the right friends around them, then I can kind of breathe a sigh of relief that they're going to be okay. And if I get the wrong friends around them, then that's bad because I know that they're they're going to take my kid somewhere bad. You know that. There's nothing wrong with with that. There's who, who we are, it's how God made us. But the thing is, where do you derive your first layer of identity? If we are who we are in relationship with others, we are who we are in relationship with the Lord as well. And if you don't get that part right, you'll never get the other part right. If you don't get the I am who I am in relationship with God part, if, you can't, if we don't get that down, then the relationship with others is always going to be a mess. Because people change and people disappoint us and people let us down and people move and people move in and move out and it's it's what they do it's what we do we're not stable we're not consistent we're not always and he is and if I am who I am and that's all based on y'all being here or liking me or whatever what happens if you move or what happens if things change or what happens if I step on your toes or what happens and then you're gone and then I'm not who I am. But if my top layer, if I'm right with the Lord and I know who I am in Him, then those things can still affect me, but it's not as earth-shattering when these things change. It's not as bad when people are people. Because they're going to be people. And I'm gonna, that's just what we do. So I would say, is that a hang-up for you? And none of this is criticism. I'm just wondering, do you get hung up on acceptance? Is that a bondage for you? Are you a people pleaser? You're always trying to make sure. We good? We good? Everybody good? Am I in? Something's going on. Am I invited? I wasn't invited. Why wasn't I invited? Y'all are getting together and you didn't invite me? Do you not like me anymore? Did I do something wrong? Can I make you a meal? Do you want some money? What do I do to get back into the crowd here? Do you know who you are in Christ? Or are you totally defined by others? And yes, we are defined by who we are in relationship with others, but the first layer. Are you constantly looking for other people to affirm you? It's not, are you good? It's, am I good? Am I good? Am I good? Are are we okay? Are you liking it? 
You get that. Is that you? Constantly needing pats on the back. People will tell you, I'm your friend and you're great or you're funny or you're smart or you're successful or whatever the thing is for you. Security. This is an easy one. This is actually probably the most superficial of them all. In our society, security equals money. So the more we've got, the more secure we feel. And we know that doesn't work because we all know good companies go down, stock markets crash, sick people, uh, healthy people get sick. We know all that. So I think a lot of us don't necessarily, that's not quite as a big a deal as maybe it, it has been in the past, maybe before 9-11. I don't know if people really believe they can hedge all their bets anymore. I don't know if people really believe that they can control all of their circumstances anymore. But that is an area where that can be a hang-up for some people. I want to know that I'm going to be taken care of, and so I'm going to take care of me. Okay? Well, how far does that go? You can only control what you can control, and there's a whole lot of stuff out here that you can't. So you're going to go nuts because you can't make any, you can't fix any of this that's out here. This is, your reach is this big, and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on outside of your reach. So we look for our security, and the Lord says, I'll take care of you. We talked about that about six weeks ago, about God as our Father and that he wants to take care of us. We just need to let him. I don't think that, again, I'm not sure that's the biggest issue for most of us in the room. I would say for most of us, it's one of those first two. We either, it's acceptance where we get hung up, or it's our identity where we get hung up. We're either constantly saying, are you good, or am I good? And that's what I want to know. And if you wrestle with one of those two things, the Bible says the, um, the God of this age has blinded us. So if you think of whatever those things are as chains or like a leash, the person holding the leash is the God of this age, who's a bad guy. So if you don't mind him holding your leash, then okay. Then continue to live like you are. But if you don't like the fact that he does, that it's this Satan, the one who wants to destroy you, is the one pulling your chain, well, right here. Anyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And the Spirit of the Lord comes and brings freedom. And I actually think that the, the area where you will, if you're blinded in an area, when God allows you to see that, that's the area where you'll receive more grace. And you'll begin to relate to God in a new way. If right now one of your biggest hang-ups is secure, hoarding things because of security, wanting to make, you know, you've got a big pile of money because you want to make sure you're okay for a rainy day or whatever, what God will do when he could show you that he takes care of that is he'll turn you from a hoarder to generous. And you'll learn to be content with what you have and you won't be stingy anymore. If your deal is your identity and you're always wanting to know, am I okay? When you, when you see the glory of God clearly in that area and that he has said, you're okay because I said you're okay. When you get that, it'll change who you are and you'll become confident, not in yourself, but you'll become confident in who you are in Jesus. And that's unshakable. If you're always wanting to know, are, are you good? Are you good? Am I in? When the Lord opens your eyes to that and you can see your acceptance in Jesus, then suddenly you'll actually become a lot better to be around because you won't be worried so much. You'll be able to serve people instead of having people always serve you. And that's not how we think about it. I'm not having them serve me, but ultimately that's what you're doing. You're being nice so that they'll be nice back. You're being nice to them so that they can include you. And you'll learn what the Lord will do is he'll change your heart. And you'll begin to serve people for the sake of, period. Just because. 
And there won't be any, you won't care if you get anything out of it or not. Because you'll know you're already accepted by him. So it's okay if I'm not accepted by you. I want to be, but if I'm not, that's okay. And so I'm free to love you without expecting you to do anything back for me. Change your life. And that's available to you this morning if you want it. Paul says anyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he removes it completely and he removes it fully. Just like he tore that curtain in half. Do the same thing. The ski mask is off. Sometimes we get cloudy again because of the lingering effects of our own sin. And he can take care of that too if you'll let him. So really the question for you this morning is, is what do you see and how free do you want to live? How free do you want to live? Do you want the God of this age to yank your chain? I think of it like, you know those um, dog leashes that are, re- that are retractable? They all, you know what I'm talking about? So the dog can go run out and then it catches and brings them back. I don't have a dog, but uh, my brother has a lab-ish type dog and lab-like. And he, has the, he said those things aren't good because the dog never knows how far it can go. If you have a leash that's eight feet, the dog knows this is as far, this is as, far as I can go. But if the leash is sometimes 8 and sometimes 10 and sometimes 15, they never know how far they can run. So there's, there's, they're tentative. And I think about the one who holds the leash on us. He doesn't give you, you don't know how far you can go. You don't know when he's going to push the button and yank you back. And that's a bad way to live. Always tentative, always wondering, is it all going to come crashing down now? Is this when he's going to pull me back? Is this when he's going to yank the chain? You don't have to live like that. Jesus can set you free, and you're set free, not just for the sake of being free. You're set free for the sake of becoming more like Jesus. Bo, you guys can come back up. We're going to have some ministry time. There'll be some teens in the back who will pray for you. If you have any, pray for you for any reason. Anything you have, we'll pray for you. But um, if any of the stuff that we shared this morning, if that rings true, if you think, hmm, I wonder if I do see clearly, I think there might be some chains in my own life and I want to see those things broken then this morning you can know freedom so I'm going to pray and then these guys are going to lead us in worship y'all can respond however you want to God I think um, the heart for all of us on some level is we do want to be like you Jesus not just for the sake of being like being like you but you live life better than anyone ever has And we want to do that. We want to live life well. And we can't do that if the God of this age has a chain around our neck. So Lord, I pray now you would come and the freedom that you purchased for us, I pray that we would enjoy fully today. You've already done the work. We just need to cash the check. So God, I pray for all of us that you would move sweetly and gently in our hearts. If there are areas where we don't see clearly, I pray that you would just you would convict us of those areas and we would respond in obedience. And God, the chains would be broken today, that we could be free uh, to become more like you, Jesus, more like the people you've created us to be.
shower to my soul. Would you rain it on us now? We cry out for more of you. Logan said it was me. To my show your face, oh Lord. Hey, bro. We cry out for your tender touch. More of your gentleness and love. We might know your presence, Lord. In your presence there's peace. In your presence. 